Hi, I'm Jim Calloway. And I'm Sharon Nelson. This is the 28th edition of the Digital Edge Lawyers and Technology. Today, our topic is What's Hot in Technology for 2010? Geez, Jim, do you think you could have picked a broader topic? I do have to confess to picking this topic, but I just noted as I was doing some research, there's a lot of things that have come up in 2009 that I think have a long-term relevance and I think are going to change the way we do business. So I appreciate you letting us talk about that, and I know you'll have plenty to add. Always. <laughs> the first trend I've identified is that business keeps going digital. Obviously, we, we are aware of that. Law firms are going more digital in their operations. We still have this misnomer of the paperless office, but digital law practice is certainly a, a reality today. But I think we're going to see as our clients become more digital, things like bills. You know, business operations become more digital. They'll want to have digital copies of their pleadings and bills sent to them instead of having to scan them. And, and rather than sending all these, some of which may be somewhat sensitive as email attachments, that means that law firms are going to be, in, in many ways, forced into doing online repositories for client documents for them to download. So we've talked about this for a while, but I see that happening, and I know posting sensitive documents where they can be downloaded is a, uh, a big issue, but uh, I, I see it happening. And and so uh, I, I think that we're just going to have to continue to evolve and, and change our practices. And, and every new thing that comes out, we have to look at it at least and say, does that, does that affect how we serve our clients? Yeah, you're absolutely right. And, and I do think that it, we've both seen whenever we have going, going digital, going paperless, those sessions at CLEs, that they continue to be very, very full. So it's like this is an ongoing stream. And the topic that I picked was cloud computing and software as a service, known as SaaS. And that topic is, of course, hot, hot, hot. Uh, businesses in general, I think, are moving to the cloud in droves, and law firms tend to be following suit, uh, just like lemmings heading over the cliff, uh, for, from our opinion, of course. And as you know, Jim, my partner John, along with fellow legal technologist Ben Shore, are kind of known as the cloud curmudgeons because they have so many caveats about using the, the cloud. We admire the technology. I mean, there's no question about what it can do. It works. It allows for less technology in the law office and someone else is doing the maintenance and security but let me repeat that last part someone else is doing the security so however useful the cloud is people who hold very sensitive data and lawyers certainly come to mind as as one of those groups we think should be the last folks to blindly walk into the cloud and, and I wanted to note too because this is so current just this week Microsoft came out lamenting that the law does not adequately protect data in the cloud and so Microsoft is now advocating the passage of something called the Cloud Computing Advancement Act and no doubt Microsoft has a vested interest in this somewhere it always does but the fundamental point Microsoft makes that there is a problem with cloud security even legally that remains and of course we've also had clouds go down and clouds get compromised and again we learned this week that Chinese hackers exploited exploited law enforcement's backdoor into Google's Gmail so do you really think that those same people can't find the vulnerabilities in a public cloud I know you and I don't wholly agree on this subject Jim but I'm predicting major problems with cloud security resulting in major breaches and I know I sound like uh, Cassandra so I'll stop wailing and just wait for my I told you so moment.
Well, I, I understand what you're saying, but I also understand the, the pressure that is driving particularly small firms to consider the cloud. Anymore, it's quite expensive to set up practice management software for a, a law firm. And then if you really want to get the bang for the buck out of it, you need consultants to come train you and whatever. So I appreciate the simplicity and particularly with the cloud products that you just get like one update a month. So you can actually learn how to use it instead of waiting and getting 30 new features when the next version comes out. So I, I do see that pressure there. And, and, and I'm going to take an aside for a second and tell you of an exciting new product that has just come out that I just looked at this week that maybe hits kind of a midpoint because it's not a cloud product, but the people from Gavel and Gown that did the Amicus Attorney software have just released a new product called Credenza. Credenza is a surprisingly powerful practice management system that nests within Microsoft Outlook. And so it has all of the matters, timesheets, phone calls, and, and links to the documents all within Outlook. I know a lot of lawyers are running their practice on Outlook now. And the pricing is only $9.95 a month. So uh, that's going to be something interesting. Credenzasoft.com is their website. You can get a 15-day free trial. It is limited really to small firm markets because only three people can share the database. But, but Sharon, you understand that pressure. A lot of lawyers just want to practice law and don't want to have to become many IT people. Well, and I do think, too, that the solos and smalls, the smaller you are, the less at risk you probably are. And, and so I think for them it's, it's going to be a better solution. I actually worry more about the larger firms. And I'll talk more about that later when I talk about data breaches. But uh, I'll sure. let you get on to your next topic. Thank you for that because I did not know about credenza. So I'll take a look at that one. Okay. Well, it would be my next topic is social networking. We've already done a whole podcast on social networking, but it would just be impossible to do a review of the year without at least mentioning social networking because it really boomed. And uh, many uh, consultants in particular are saying lawyers have to be using Twitter and Facebook and all of these things. And and I guess my initial response to that still is if you enjoy using that, you can certainly get business benefit out of it. But using these tools well is more important than just using them because they're there. But I did notice more and more talk in family law circles of how social networking sites are becoming virtual gold mines for them in custody battles and whatever. People will just post anything on the web. I think there's a generational difference, and you and I are both on the other side of that divide. But I love Twitter. To me, the, uh, as I said in a recent article, the most valuable aspect of Twitter is the fact that my colleagues collectively read many more articles than I could and post the links to the best ones for me to read. So I really love Twitter. And I also want to note that the uh, boom in social networking resulted in Oxford's Dictionary's 2009 Word of the Year being unfriend to remove <laughs> someone as a friend on Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's pretty funny. I you know I I still think people ask me, well, what's what's your expert opinion on social networking for lawyers as a marketing tool? And I agree, it is a goldmine for e-discovery. But as a marketing tool, I still think the jury's out because I I don't know that lawyers have enough marketing time in order to do social networking adequately in order to really make it pay off. So I, I still have some, some concerns about it. And I did note a report this week that says that the growth of Twitter has dramatically slowed. And that's the first time since that has happened, uh, since Twitter has really come, come to the forefront here. So I still think that the jury's out. And I have to tell these people that I don't have an expert opinion because I, I haven't made up my own mind yet. 
I have had the experience of having nine or ten high school buddies all associate with me on Facebook recently, so that's been a whole other experience. But Man, if, we'll if, you, talk about if your high school buddies are like my high school buddies, <laughs> I don't want them posting anything about those days. <laughs> Thank God there were no social networks then. <laughs> well, what do you think lawyers can use for marketing, Sharon? Any new cutting-edge ideas? Well, you know, I don't know if it's brand new, but certainly I think lawyer videos have reached a real critical mass. I've never seen such a flood as what I've seen recently, so it's another hot, hot, hot topic. And it's really a case of the good, the bad, and the, the ugly. So let's talk about the ugly ones. No webcams. Come on. You, you just can't do it. The quality just isn't there. It, it makes the lawyer look terrible. And really, I think, rarely does a lawyer have the equipment or the skills to make this a do-it-yourself project. Here's what I think make, goes into making a really decent video. About a $5,000 camera, professional lights, a professional quality mic, a green screen, and you need special software and the talent to use it in order to create backgrounds and special effects. And people are starting to expect a little bit of magic, not just a talking head. The bad videos are those, oh, you know what I forgot? I forgot the teleprompter. That's, that's, that's six things. So you need a teleprompter as well because you can never remember what to say. And the teleprompter helps you sound much smoother. It's usually right over the camera so you look like you're looking at the camera. And you can adjust the speed of the teleprompter, which is very useful. You can tell I've been doing this a lot recently, and we have. The bad videos are those that just sell, 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 pitch, 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 or the ones that just all look the same with a lawyer with a bookcase behind them. And then there are the lawyers who just don't present well, or they have a face made for radio. There's just not everybody is made to be a video rock star. Even here at Sensei, we experimented with different people to see who had kind of the highest Q factor when we were doing the videos, and it turned out to be our assistant director of computer forensics. So that's who we use for, for a, these series of videos. The, the good videos, I think, are those that inform. And for lawyers, I think answering frequently asked questions in your area is particularly helpful at attracting clients. And then you can have your own channel on YouTube and then embed your videos as well on your website. When folks search for you on Google, your videos come up. And you can help the whole process by adding a description and tags when you post them. So just as a, a for instance, if people want to take a look at YouTube and search on Sensei Enterprises, you'll find our videos and you'll get some idea of what I think constitutes a good informational video. One to two minutes, answer a common question, a little bit of magic but not too much, and then put your contact info at the end, leaving it up long enough for folks to digest it. So you've given away information for free. Now if they need more, you give them your website and the way to contact you so they can do it. But it's sort of a gentle suggestion. So what can I tell you, Jim? Our, our phone started ringing since our videos went up just a, a few days ago. And it's from the video, so I'm a happy lady. Well, that's pretty cool. I have to say, I noticed in an airline magazine, I think, or some other shopper, that there was a put-yourself-in-the-movies kit you could buy that had video clips with the authorization secured for 10 or 15 classic movies, a green screen, and the whole bit, so you could actually edit yourself into famous movie scenes. That sounded like that. <laughs> we, could, we could have some fun with that, a few beers. We could, have, we could make a night of that, Jim. That would be a good time. <laughs> Well, I want to talk a little bit about mobile phones. 
mobile phones just keep getting smarter. And in fact, I had a uh, discussion with a younger colleague whether they were first called cell phones and then called mobile phones. He, he and I had reverse opinions on that. And mm-hmm. lately we hear a lot about smartphones, but the new label I've heard lately is app phones. And I think mm-hmm. that that really shows that there's a difference now. And, and your phone is, is you know, the, the one generation was just talking on the phone without being connected to a wire. The next generation was synchronizing with Outlook so you could have your calendar and your email and those kind of things. And now we see phones as an independent computer base running all of these apps for all sorts of things. So I, I just think that's a huge area. And, and lawyers who haven't yet figured out that it doesn't matter that the price is a little high, you've got to have a phone with your calendar on it. That's a absolute business requirement at this point for lawyers as I view. I'm excited because it's time for me to get a new phone and despite <laughs> dire warnings for some uh, great close personal friends of mine, I'm still going to jump on the iPhone bandwagon. But I know you and, you and uh, John have made quite a splash on the internet with some of your, one of your articles I think that the iPhones basically were too insecure for law firm use and you had to talk to a poor guy who you caused to lose his iPhone when the ABA quoted you on that. <laughs> yeah, we, we sure did. And, and to tell you the truth, I mean, we're great fans of the iPhone in, in terms of its function. It's wonderful. And, and it really is true that what they say on TV, there's an app for that. I mean, it's true for almost everything. So it, it's just astonishing. Even somebody in Haiti who was buried under the rubble was able to give himself first aid treatment by uh, by accessing an app on his iPhone. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's incredible. Uh, but 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 it was, it certainly was not designed as a secure phone. I I will say, though, Jim, we are hearing rumblings that Apple has, in fact, heard. We're not the only critics of of iPhone security by any means, but we understand that Apple has heard these complaints and that it's very possible that they are now working on it and they will issue a release that will fix some of these security problems. And we, we certainly hope so. And when they do it, we'll announce that as well because we'd like lawyers to feel secure with their iPhones. One thing I'd like to point out is the Bar Association guy on this podcast, we're always concerned about security. We'll talk about that a little more lately. But if you've got a smartphone with important data on it, whether it's an iPhone or another kind of phone, you need to set that pin so at least people have to try, you know, 9,000 different numbers before they can break into your phone if they find it when it's lost. So that, you haven't done that. That's, that's true, except, of course, if it's an iPhone because you can bypass the pin, and that's, that's one of our problems. <laughs> You still get by the eight-year-olds, if not the fifteen-year-olds. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, there you go. The, the cutoff is is it thirteen? Is it is it fifteen? <laughs> but yeah, let me go on to my next topic, which is something which I think has had a resurgence, and that's Google AdWords. How does Google make money? Really, it's AdWords. That's that's the primary revenue source that that Google has. It's a huge money-making machine. And if you think you tried Google AdWords three or four years ago when it made a big splash, uh, and you think you know about it, forget it. I mean, it is just a whole new beast, and it is bloody complicated. Electronic marketing and lawyering are two of the things I do for a living, so you think I could get some kind of handle on this thing pretty easily. But in abject humility, I've got to tell you that this stuff makes me tear my hair out. It's really complex, and I seriously doubt that most lawyers have the time to figure out all the permutations of geographic areas, exact matches versus non-exact, landing pages that get a high-quality score because they match the keywords, how much to bid for keywords, and that list just goes on and on and on. So when we tried this three or four years ago, we thought it was throwing money down a rat hole, didn't see anything from it. 
but we started up several months ago and I've got to tell you that we're seeing folks click through to our website wipe website through the landing pages and I should probably explain that landing pages are basically a single screen page that amplifies a particular AdWords ad so if you're an education lawyer who has experience representing autistic children you'll have those words in your ad but the ad is so short so your landing page will specifically talk about autistic children and your experience representing them even though there's a lot of other things you do it's very specific to the ad and then it also includes what they they call a call to action your your name and phone number and a call us or whatever and a link to your website for further information now to our absolute astonishment our website traffic has doubled since we began using AdWords. So we're still in the process of working out how many folks convert to clients, which is more complicated than you might think because people, they tend to think, I got you from your website, and they don't remember that they actually got there originally through the ad. So it, it can be very complicated to figure out conversion rates. But the last point I want to make here is that 70% of users only look at organically generated ads, and I'm among those people. But for the commercial real estate, at the top and the right side of the Google page, 30% go there. I don't know why they go there, but that's the percentage that LexisNexis research has shown using the paid ads. And of course, nobody wants to lose out on a potential pool of clients that's that large. So I'm just happy so far with seeing the increase in traffic because I know some percentage of that absolutely does convert to clients. You know, none of our Oklahoma lawyers that I know that have used AdWords have reported to me astonishing results. I don't know if they'd tell the guy at the bar if they were getting great hits on a certain AdWords. So maybe that's the case. But I do note that some of them are just, you know, they're not making great scientific decisions, but they're limited in how much they have to pay. And so their theory is, well, these AdWords may not be perfect, but if I'm limiting my uh, liability, so to speak, on it to only $100 a month, I can't get hurt too bad. And so that's a, another strategy to look at. Yeah, and and that's, that's true. And of course, we limit as well. And, and it is true that we have stumbled upon some, some uh, keywords that are like magic, and I'm not sharing them with anybody. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I, one of the things that has I, I find fascinating is, is the emergence in, in both tablet PCs and ebook readers. By mentioning these, I, I run the risk of I think Bill Gates about five years ago had a prophecy that tablets would basically replace the PC market. We saw how far that went. So I hate to get there, but it just occurs to me that there are a lot of lawyers still using the legal pad and that if they were using a tablet to take their notes instead of the legal pad then these notes could be filed in the digital file really easy and 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 the handwriting recognition software has gotten surprisingly good but even if you don't try to use handwriting recognition software uh, you still have the same thing that you would have written on the legal yellow legal pad except now it's digital and you can put it in your file without having to try to scan a page torn out of the legal pad and whatever so I, I really think that that we're still you know looking at this and how this is going to work. Certainly we know that people have all sorts of different sizes and shapes of portable computers they carry now. Purchased something from the Apple store recently and the gentleman I was talking with said, well, are you going to pay with a credit card? And I said, yes. And so he just pulled out something that looked like his phone and swiped it and printed out the receipt and everything right there. So I thought yeah. that was kind of interesting. That, that's what they're using on airplanes now too. 
Right. But the, the ebook readers, I, I've talked to a lot of book lovers, and, and it's interesting to, to see the transition in the true book lover. They start out by saying, I could never give up my physical book. I love the tactile feel of it. I, they're comfortable. I don't need power. They work right and whatever. And then when they get a Kindle or something like that, they report back that, you know, I still want to read books in the old format, but it sure is nice to have a selection of books and newspapers and magazines with you, just like you carry all your music around with you on the iPod. So uh, I, I think that, that we're still going to see more convergence in that area. And just recently, Apple announced tablet entry that's been much awaited. They're ca calling it the iPad. I think there was a pool on in England on what the name was going to be, so I don't know who collected on that. But, uh, and, and as you and I were talking just before we started recording, and they're going to have an unlimited AT&T 3G data plan for only $30 a month. I mean, that's like a lot less than I play for my data plan with another carrier. What do you think about that, Sharon? Well, I, I think that if they can't support 3G network for the iPhone, and they're now going to add this iPad to the bandwidth load, I think AT&T is going to look worse than it does already. And it looks terrible. Well, I, I'm a, I fear you're correct, but whatever access you have, and whether it's you know the the true tablet or the netbook, I think these almost throwaway computers you can carry around at the cheapness of them. It's going to be really interesting how this all shakes out. So, but if you're a lawyer who doesn't type, you should strongly look at both a, a tablet PC and and speech recognition software because th that's holding you back in your career at this point. Yeah, I agree. I agree with that, Jim. Let's move to the need, which is very hot these days, to pay real attention to e-discovery. In 2009, collectively, roughly 25% of the reported e-discovery cases involved sanctions. Now, in the good old days, judges routinely sanctioned clients. In these bad new days, judges are much quicker to sanction both clients and attorneys. And that has, as you can imagine, made this topic a whole bunch hotter. The number one rule, which I've drawn from the opinions, is you've got to be competent. And that means that you need to learn something about technology and the e-discovery process, uh, maybe even computer forensics. And what you don't know, you better have covered by an expert. So if you come up with some raggle-taggle list of search keywords and, and the court gets a hold of this thing that's clearly not going to discover the relevant evidence, they are not going to be happy with the lack of competence exerted. So competence in searching means that your methodology has to be three things. It has to be transparent, defensible, and tested through a sampling process. And that's just one, one single example of what you need to know about e-discovery, but it's a very long list. So the best advice I can give lawyers is to ramp up their e-discovery education because judges no longer have tolerance for those who are inept. Yes, I, I fear that the idea that I can just not worry about that technology stuff, is, is that's another area where it's becoming clear that you do have to worry about it. Just a word about remote access and, and telecommuting. Of course, some people feel like having iPhone access to their email is telecommuting, but I need a real computer and a full <laughs> keyboard at least at this point. But more and more, I tell small firm lawyers that this is an area where you really need to pay attention and set up because it's your quality of life. 
avoiding driving into the office when you just want to check something on a file. And so there's you know tools to do that. They, you know, everybody can find the tools real easy. But uh, we're going to see a lot more of this idea of remote access. But I, as I was writing an article talking about some of these things, it occurred to me that you're, it's going to make personnel management, human relations, even more interesting because we're going to have people who are calling in sick because they got to take care of their kid, but there's going to be a project, and then they're going to work from home on it. And before you know it, when your firm has made no really strategic decision, you're in the telecommuting business. And then as soon as it works out well with one person, the person who you know you don't want to be telecommuting is going to ask for permission to do it. And so it's going to be a, an interesting challenge in how we manage our law offices. But for lawyers, Clearly, you need to be able to have access to the data on your computer remotely, and that means that you're going to have to have more of a digital law practice to have data there that's worthwhile accessing. And, and securely, of course, always an issue. Always. And, and that, that brings me to my our last topic, which is data breaches, and I'm not going to talk anymore about cloud computing because I've had my chance to rant on that. This is more about the fact that data breaches are becoming an everyday occurrence across the country. CEOs are wringing their hands. They don't have extra funds in this economy for network security, and yet if their networks aren't secure, the costs are astronomical if there is a breach. I read a study just this week that said that the 2009 cost of a data breach was $204 per record breached. And so if you can imagine, if you have millions of records breached, you've got a heck of a drain on the company coffers to say nothing of the public relations nightmare. I had a, I had a note this week commenting on one of my blog posts in Ride the Lightning from Rob Ross at Banner Health. And he sent me a link to a very illustrative video his company put together uh, full of humor as well on how data breaches happen and how much of the time careless or lazy employees are really the issue. You know, he shows an employee tempted by the dark side, you know, to not encrypt the laptop, to not encrypt an email to a doctor, you know, leave files around. But then, of course, the employee always ends up doing the right thing. But it's it's pretty well done. And if, uh, if you want to search on Banner Health on Ride the Lightning, it's about, I think it's like a six and a half minute video. But it's one of the best things I've seen. And it certainly captures people's attention and gives them a look. Of course, he's worried about HIPAA violations. Sure, I'm sure, uh, which lawyers typically don't have to worry too much about. But law firms are very much in jeopardy from this kind of behavior. So training employees yearly is probably a very good answer, as well as making sure that your networks are really, really secure and that you really are thinking about holding and transmitting sensitive data in an encrypted form. Also, law firms really should note the recent FBI report that Chinese hackers have targeted law firms notably merger and acquisition firms, but others as well. So do you really want to leave your network door ajar? Sometimes, Jim, I despair of lawyers ever grasping the security implications of the technology, but then I remind myself that that's part of what keeps me in business, and then I feel ever so much better. <laughs> well, an another thing, Sharon, is that the public relations might nightmare may become self-inflicted in the future uh, as more and more states consider data breach notification laws where you actually have to tell all your clients if you've lost something containing their data. So can you imagine a young associate loses a laptop and a law requires you to notify all of your clients that you may have compromised their information? What a disaster for the law firm. Oh, absolutely. Luckily, many states... Go ahead. Absolutely. And I think, aren't we up to about 40 states now that actually have those laws? There are, except many of them, like in my state, it's just if the government loses the, the data. It's not applied to private individuals yet, I, I believe. Ah, okay. But, but there's several that have that. 
it's a scary proposition, but you, you talk about knocking off 20% of your client base instantly. I think that notification would do it. Oh, uh, no question about it. A- absolutely and probably more. Well, thank you, Jim, and I'm glad you're restored to good health. We missed you uh, last month. And that's all, folks, for this edition of the Digital Edge, Lawyers and Technology. Thanks for joining us. Goodbye, Miss Sharon. Happy trails, cowboy.